Father, thank you. Thank you that you are holy. Thank you that you are mighty and powerful beyond anything that we can imagine. I thank you that you are so gracious and kind beyond even our grasp of those words to send your son Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, to pay the penalty for our sins. He was perfect. He was holy. He lived that holy life, but yet he came and all of our sins were poured out on him. He was despised. He was rejected on our behalf. And Father, we give you all the glory and we give you all the praise. Let us worship you. Let the cry of our hearts be toward the one who has created us, toward the one who sustains us, toward the one who breathed life into our very beings. And Father, may you anoint your word. God, I pray that you would help me to just stay out of the way of what you want to communicate today about your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we will give you all the glory and all the honor for you truly are the only one who is worthy. We just pray and believe these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the church together said, Amen. 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 We're going to continue today in our uh, series of walking through um, the book of John. We're in John chapter 2 this week. We finished up John chapter 1 last week. And we're going to pick up the first 12 verses of John chapter 2. If it helps you any, it's page 1440 in my Bible. Don't know if that helps you at all. Maybe it'll get you close, though. I mean, it'll get you in the neighborhood. You know, that means it's not over here in page, you know, 1 through 100. (laughs) It's somewhere over here to the right. That's where you'll find it. So the gospel according um, to John. Let's, um, if you're there, say amen. All right, close enough. All right, we're, here we go. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Here's what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. (laughs) Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Now, Cana is a, a small country village. Um, I was trying to explain to somebody here recently that, that had come by, uh, and they're not from here, and I was explaining about the difference between Oxford, Anniston, Sachs, Welburn, you know, White Plains, you know, all this stuff, and they're, they're going, well, I, I mean, I don't see these big city things and all this stuff, and I'm going, man, we're just like all a little connected, you know, stuff together, and everybody's got a high school and, and all of this, and, and they're just, you know, astounded by some of that. But that's kind of the way this stuff was. Cana was a little small country village that was nearby Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It's not where Jesus was born, Nazareth wasn't, but it is where he grew up. There's some apparent connection between Jesus and his family and this wedding party because, number one, they had been invited, but also because his mother is involved in some fashion because she knew about the concern with the wine running out, and she approached Jesus with that concern, asking him to do something about it. Now, a lot of times, if you're somewhere and you're not really connected in, they run out of stuff. See, we were at a men's conference yesterday. Isn't that right, Lance? And, and, and our good friends at U3B, and they ran out of biscuits. And we had just gotten in line. I just want to tell you, that'll test your relationship with Jesus. Because we were looking for a biscuit. And, uh, and we stood there for about 15 minutes. They said, we're cooking more biscuits. And, and of course, you know, we're good friends with a lot of folks that are there at that church. And so one of their guys came over, Phil Blair, he's over their, their outreach. And, and he said, man, he said, normally there were about 600 men there on, on uh, Friday night. I mean, it was packed out. But there was probably at least, I'm guessing there was 450 or so at least there on Saturday morning. And so, uh, but he said, normally we have a drop-off on Saturday morning. We don't have this many. And so we didn't, we had the biscuits here, but we didn't plan to cook that many. We thought we had this covered. But praise God, they run out of biscuits, you know. There's a sermon in there somewhere, I just know it. When you run out of biscuits. I don't know what that's going to be. I'm going to have to find some scripture to back it up. I don't, you know. But when you run, maybe the widow, you know, that's got to feed the, the prophet there beside the, the stream, you know. So you've got, got to have meal and oil when you run out of biscuits. I'm going to have to catalog that one away. I may, I may have to use that one. But we're, we're standing there and, and, uh, and fi, you know, Phil told us about the situation. And we'd been standing for about 15 minutes or so. And then uh, a nice lady walked up and she said, Hey, we just want y'all to know that it's going to be about another 15 minutes. And I was thinking, Jesus going to have to come and help because it's getting close to time for this thing to start. And we didn't have anything to eat before we got there because we were excited about men getting up, coming together, and having breakfast. And then we're going to get some word and we're going to get fed, but we're going to have a problem if we can't get a biscuit. Because you know how it is. You're trying to, if you didn't eat something on the way here, that's why you... That's one of the reasons why we have stuff out here, because I don't want you to be sitting in church going, man, I can't even think about what he's preaching, because I, man, I need a biscuit, right? <laughs> you know, there's an answer on why you need some biscuits and some strawberries and stuff out here. But if, you know, we weren't connected to that, so I wasn't worried about heading over to the kitchen or anything and going, hey, I need to help y'all cook some biscuits. I mean, we were, just, we were just there, but we weren't tied in. We didn't have any responsibility for figuring out the lack of biscuits. So... 
when you see Jesus' mother come over and say, hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine. He says, What's, why is that my issue? <laughs> Let's just be honest. That's what he, that's what he said very respectfully because we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But you know, There's obviously some kind of connection that's there. It's taking place just a few days after we saw Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel at the end of John chapter 1, literally, uh, most believe, about two days after that. But we've got to understand what was going on because the nature of Jewish weddings is important for us to grasp what was happening. Typical Jewish wedding would last about a week. And it had three steps. How about that? For all of y'all, you know, how many dads, you know, you, you get excited about the idea of it because, you know, it's always, you got to pay for the wedding, you know, if it's, right? You, you're supposed to. Uh-huh. You're supposed to pay for the wedding, you know, if it's, you, you, depending on what you, girl or boy, that you've got in your family, you know, you have to pay for some. Hey, it's not, it doesn't necessarily get all that exciting when you got to pay for, for that wedding, right? you got all that stuff going on. So imagine if you had to cover a wedding for a week. We get excited because we got to cover somewhere where there's a wedding that lasts for about an hour or so. But now you're going to have to cover a wedding that's going to take a whole week. And it had three stages. Stage number one, you had the marriage feast and the ceremony that would take place on the same night. So you would have that occur. Then you would publicly escort the couple to their home. So it wasn't like now where we have this situation where you, you take and uh, you get... You get the, uh, the car and you decorate somebody's car up. I don't know about, about you guys, but I see now, now a lot of people are they're putting the fake car in place, right? They'll put somebody else's car because, you know, people out there putting Vaseline under the door handles. Not that any of y'all would ever do it. If Bird was here, I would probably talk to him and Rodney Keefe and Brandon New, some of those guys, because they, they're putting Vaseline under door handles, stretch wrapping the, you know, the car doors, and you know, people get upset. You know, you do that kind of stuff on their car. But, the, you know, that's, and we wave them as they go away, right? We wave at them, you know, because they're driving. Now, that's not the way this went in a Jewish wedding. In a Jewish wedding, they were going to escort them all the way through town and they would take the longest possible route to get to the house because the whole community participated in this wedding. And so they would go the longest way possible. And now many of you, I'm just going to digress for a moment. Many of you, when you got married, you were ready to get to where you were going. Let's just leave it at that. Can you imagine if the wedding is this deal where people drag you all over town trying to get to where y'all going, and they're all with you. They're all hanging out. Enough said. That was, that was, that was number two, step number two in, in their, their marriage ceremony. Number three, then, was you had to have an open house that finished up the rest of the week. So you had all these people coming over, having a party at your house, and you just got married. Some of y'all, you come back off a of vacation, you don't want nobody coming to your house. You imagine you just got married, and you got to put up with everybody for a week. They're all going to come hang out. They're going to, Dennis would love weddings like this because he's always talking about we're going to do visitation and come eat your food and all that. That's exactly what a Jewish wedding was like. We're going to come over, eat your food for a week. A week. But here's the thing. It would create a high level of public shame if the groom ran out of supplies, particularly if he ran out of wine. And there's still some days for the celebration to happen. It'd be an indelible mark on his reputation in the community. 
Here's this guy who's supposed to be hosting the biggest moment of his life, and they're only a couple of days in to the the wedding, and he's already out of stuff? Man, he would never live that down in that community. Now, a lot of people might wonder, well, how come they didn't just, you know, live with, you know, drinking some water or some other beverage in place of the wine and keep the celebration going? But in this part of the world at that time, germ-free water was not that readily available. And so most of the time what would happen is that you would have wine as the common drink that was available that would keep people healthy and keep them free from sickness that was due to this contamination. Now, there's an important thing for us to recognize out of this first part of John chapter 2, and it's simply this. Jesus was not a recluse. There's a lot of folks that for some reason want to treat Jesus like he must have been hanging out in the temple wearing a robe all the time. He probably was wearing a robe all the time, but you know, just hanging out in the temple with a robe on with, a, with the scrolls in his hands, and he was probably theeing and vowing and King James and everything that he could find, right? You know, that must be what Jesus is doing. But that's not what we see Jesus doing. In fact, although we see consistently in other places in Scripture that even you guys have heard me often use the statement where it says that as was his custom that he was in the temple on the Sabbath day, but the rest of the time we see him out with people. We see him out in the community, and most of the time we see him out with people that no one else wanted to hang out with. Now, religious people would follow him around, all right, because that still happens today. There's a lot of people still following around somewhere around Jesus. They're just not really disciples, but we'll, anyway, we'll, we'll move on. We won't meddle too much today. But he was hanging out with people oftentimes that nobody else wanted to be around because he came to save the last, the least, and the lost. The folks that were sick needed a physician. Those that are well didn't need a physician. So he was going, hey, we need to go hang out with people that need help. I'm glad he did because I needed help when he showed up in my life. But Jesus was not a recluse. He was part of the social fabric of the community. And and reason for that is he knew that the Godhead of which he is a part had created mankind to be a social being, to live in relationship, to have relationships with people. So he took an active part in the social climate of the community. So Jesus' mother comes and tells him, not just, hey, some folks that we obviously know have run out of wine. This is a socially important issue. Because it's going to have an impact on the social reputation of this couple that's just gotten married for as long as they are alive and living in this area. Anybody that knows about them now, their social reputation is going to be affected by this. And they're going to be probably mocked and talked about behind the scenes. Because you know you know that people that get together, especially family or something at a wedding, you know on the way home, y'all don't ever talk about stuff you saw go wrong at the wedding, Right. I mean, you don't ever talk about, man, that food was terrible. Did you eat one of those sandwiches? My goodness, that thing was terrible. I'd spit it back out on the plate. Did you see how they were acting over it? Did you see her family? My goodness, I think they was all crazy. I was, y'all know you're getting in the car doing stuff. Like, maybe some of y'all are sanctified enough that you're not doing it. But, <laughs> but I'm not going to try to figure out which ones. <laughs> the groom's going to be embarrassed. He's going to be embarrassed because of this. Not only has he run out of wine in the general concept, but as we understand and see in this passage, they've already gone through the good stuff and the bad stuff. Because we saw there in verse 10 that the master of ceremonies, you know, they had an MC going on, you know, for this here party. And he, he says, wait a minute. Now, the deal normally is you have the good stuff and then everybody gets... A little bit where they're not tasting it as much anymore. Leave that, leave that like it is. And then 
when that happens, you brought the bad stuff out. You know, you brought the cheap stuff. You brought out the wine in a box, right? <laughs> you brought out the stuff that you picked up at the 7-Eleven. You know, this wasn't the good stuff. That's <laughs> what they had, y'all. Jesus responds to his mother in a way that, you know, you might think is a little callous because when we read this today, we tend to put some emphasis on stuff. You know, we read this and we go, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? <laughs> y'all, y'all know that's all how you read that scripture. When, when I was reading it, you were thinking it. You were thinking, woman. Now, we look at that and we think, man, he's, he's just being, you know, pretty... Uh, Got a little male chauvinism going on there. That's not, where, that's not where Jesus was. He actually uses that same word, that same phrase, when he's hanging on the cross, and he looks down, and he sees his mother, and John is there beside her. He uses the same phrase where he says, woman. See here, that guy? That's going to be your son now. He, he used that same term when he was addressing the situation and making sure she was provided for. So why did, he, why did he use that term? Why didn't he call her mother? Why didn't he refer to her in some other term of endearment? Part of it is because Jesus already understood that this situation was going to be something about his deity. This was going to be an opportunity for him to display that he was God. This was not, I'm your son in the moment. You may have come to me, but I'm going to make a point out of this that what I'm about to do, I'm not going to function as your son. I'm going to function as God. I'm going to function in a way where that even you understand that although you're my mother, you will have to come to me for salvation because I am God. It wasn't disrespectful or anything. He just shifted over into a different role. He shifted out of I'm your son to I'm your savior. And he says, what does this have to do with me? He said, my hour has not yet come. It's a very, rather common term, so we can move on past that. Jesus understands the social need of the moment, but he sees the bigger picture of the spiritual need of all mankind. In this moment, Jesus understands he can do something that will provide a far greater witness than simply meeting a social need. Now, I need to... I need to to pause for a moment and emphasize a point. Simply meeting a social need for someone is not truly following the example of Jesus Christ. However, ignoring the social need of someone because you're only focused on the spiritual also is not truly following the example of Jesus Christ. Because the example that Jesus sets right here is he sees a social need. He sees a very practical problem, but he sees a way to have a spiritual influence in this situation. So while they have a social need that's going to affect their reputation forever, he sees an opportunity to do something supernatural and in the spiritual needs in their lives. Ironically, there is a great parallel between the two. I want you to catch this. Running out of wine would bring shame and embarrassment to the groom for the rest of his life. Sin does the same to us. But it, it pushes beyond this life into eternity. Second parallel. The groom had obviously utilized what resources he had to make provision for himself, but he'd come up short. Our sin bears a price that we simply do not have the ability to pay. We can do everything within our power, but what we're going to find out is we can't pay the price. 
The third thing is that the need that the groom had, the need that the groom had required someone else to step in and make provision for him. Our sin required Jesus to step in and provide what we could not obtain for ourselves in our moment of universal need. See, Jesus sees these articles that were used for the dead religion of the time. He sees these jars. There's these stone jars that are there that are used for religious purposes. They're used for ceremonial cleansing. They're commonplace items. They're filled with water that was commonplace. So there wasn't anything that was really special about really the, the stone pots or the water. They were, they were common things. They had an existing purpose, but that existing purpose was tied to religious tradition. Mm. The stone could be used for these containers. These weren't earthen jars. The stone was used because it was believed that the stone would not contract ritual uncleanness. It would not uh, it soak up germs or anything like that because it was stone. That's what they believed. There were large jars. We saw that they can contain between 20 and 30 gallons. As I thought about these jars, I thought about our church and all the other churches that are around our city today. Because they're all full at some level with people that are vessels. And we all have a purpose. But maybe it's just not the purpose that we see in the moment. See, vessels are going to be sitting in church pews and chairs all around the city. But will they simply be functioning as part of a religious tradition? Will they be half empty, not being used, part of a dead religious experience that includes a whole lot of stone-hard people who have a lot of capacity but usually just sit in the corner with only an occasional function in their lives? These pots were just sitting there. He didn't say, you got to take and put everything. He said, just fill them the rest of the way up. Jesus, Jesus utilizes these ordinary containers. He has ordinary servants take ordinary water and fill them up. At the moment, there's nothing that's all that spectacular about the container or the water. The spectacular takes place when the God of the universe acts on these everyday items to do a creative miracle, which was his first miracle, to create something entirely new out of the commonplace. I think it's amazingly interesting that we see in, in Genesis, we see in the beginning, God created. The first thing that Jesus does as a miracle, Jesus creates. See, God is a creative God. God is one who wants to do creative things in your life. And I don't mean just creative things like he wants to draw something. It looks like an abstract painting. I'm not saying that, you know, we hear people say, you know, you're God's masterpiece. And you are God's masterpiece. But, you know, God's not going all Pablo Picasso on you. You know, where the stuff's like weird shapes and all this stuff. And that's not necessarily what he's trying to do when he wants you to be a masterpiece. Although sometimes you might wonder. <laughs> you might have some of those masterpieces in your family. You know, you're looking around going, man, they are a Picasso Christian. <laughs> God bless them. Or as, or as you know, we say here in the South, and it is, not a, uh, it is not an endearing phrase, bless their heart. Bless their heart, Lord. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you throw something spiritual onto that, it makes it sound even better, right? Just bless their heart, Lord. He did a creative miracle. But Jesus uses this first miracle to show something deep and powerful about why he's come. In fact, he even makes his first reference to the reality that his hour is not yet here. He makes nine references to that in the book of John. Nine references to his hour. 
three of those are pointing to it, six of those talk about it then having happened. It points toward the pivotal moment of all of humanity's existence. It's the pinnacle for the time being of history because we've had all of this stuff happen, we've had creation, we have all of those great things, but the God of the universe, His Son willingly is going to come, He's going to hang on a cross, He's going to die for our sins, He's going to be buried three days later, He's going to rise from the dead, and He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father where He lives to ever make intercession for us. It's that point that is the pivotal moment of humanity's existence. It's the time of His glorification. So this, this first miracle points toward that. He says, hey, my hour's not yet come, but I am going to do something. I'm going to do this first miracle, and it is going to point in that direction because it is the first moment where Jesus takes the commonplace and produces something new and different out of it. It's a simple reality of what Jesus does in the conversion process or what we tend to refer to today as salvation. He converts us into something new and different than we were before. And that's why you'll see today that we speak during baptism about the old person dying and being raised to walk in newness of life. Because he takes and he converts us. He takes that which was, was dead, that which was lifeless, and he converts us into something that is different. And that's what he was doing. I mean, why, why does it really matter if, if Jesus wants to take in, you know, six stone pots and have people fill them up and, and turn some water into wine? I mean, what's the big deal? And he was pointing toward the reality of if I can take a commonplace stone pot and I can take some, just some basic water, which was known to typically not have you know, a healthy way for you to be drinking this stuff. And it's, and it's tied to all of this religious observations and following all of these rules. And I'm going to take every bit of that stuff and I'm going to do something new with it. I'm going to create something that's brand new. And I'm going to meet a need. It's not only a powerful example of his plan to change us, but it demonstrates the extent to which he changes us. When the servants draw out of these filled up pots and take it to the MC. That was for y'all. Y'all didn't. I can't. I just want y'all to know this row right here. I can't get cheers out of them. I've tried. I've tried doing the whole, you know, get fired up now. See, that's what I get right there. That's it. That's what I get. <laughs> I was dropping the MC for y'all. Look, I even did both hands. My kids hate that. They do. They'll tell me later, Dad, don't ever do that again. Don't do that, Dad. Going, you know, that's a lighthearted moment in the, in the sermon. Self, you know, anyway. <laughs> Servants take out and they draw out of the pots and they take it to the master of the ceremonies for the party. And, and he is like totally astonished. He calls the groom over. And he says, he says, hey, I don't understand what's going on. Because this just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You know, normally you have, like we were talking about earlier, you have a little bit of the good stuff, and then once everybody's had that, you kind of break out the stuff that everybody knows. He says, but you have held the best stuff back until now. So the groom goes from looking like a zero to looking like a hero. He's like, man, well, I mean, we were okay with that you had some good stuff earlier, but now you got the great stuff out now. 
See, Jesus doesn't do things halfway in our lives. When he changes us, he does so in a radical, powerful way that is abundantly and irrefutably obvious to everybody that's around us. When he comes into your life as Lord and Savior, it is clearly and obviously known and seen. Why is this? It is because that you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece that he displays to the world. And he's, here's what he's saying. When he takes your life, no matter where it was, no matter what it was, see, he's not hung up about what your life looked like. He's not hung up and worried about how bad your life was or maybe not so bad that your life was or whatever it is that you see in your life. He's not hung up about that because he's not constrained by any of it. He's not like you and I. You and I, we may have some skills and abilities to take certain things that we've had some training with and we can do something with it. You know, I, man, I love watching these TV shows sometimes where um, we got hung up on it probably about two or three years ago. Man, I they see these people when they're, you know, American Pickers, you know, and those guys, hey, they're going out and they're finding stuff in a barn. I'm still not entirely convinced that all the people on all these shows actually know everything, you know, that they just rattle off when something comes in and they start rattling dates off. And yeah, that was last made in 1932, January the 6th, you know, and, and so I don't know. They may just be feeding it, you know, for the TV show. But I'm still impressed with the fact that people are able to see something. They know what it does. They find some alternative use for it. I, I, got, I, got some, I got some friends. My dad's actually probably this way. Jeff actually knows my dad. He's known my dad since, since Jeff was little. My dad's for one of these guys. When I, when I, was, uh, when I was little, we, we went to yard sales all the time. I don't know why. It's, you know, you're not selling your yard, but anyway, that's a whole nother. But it's a sell in your yard. But, but we go to these yard sales. We'd be up early in the morning. And man, I mean, I have been in so many houses in the city of Aniston and the surrounding area. You know, back before the Victoria, when it was first getting sold, before they started doing anything, it was years ago. Man, we went to, a, we went to an estate sale up in there. And my mom's gotten stuff for Christmas that we got at an estate sale. I probably got some stuff for Christmas that came from an estate sale. So people would go around, and, and, and we'd find something. And my dad's that way. There's times where he'll be riding down the road, and he'll see something that somebody's put out beside the road that's going to go to the trash dump. He's going, hey, we could do something with that. <laughs> well, yeah, we could. And so it, it kind of got over on me. And so now I'm having to go back all these years later and try to clean the house out. Because there's stuff that I look around. I have a violin. I just want you to know, I have a violin that has no strings, has none of the little tuning things or anything, because I had this vision that I, so I picked it up for like five bucks at, an, at a yard sale, and there was a broken window that, that just had the frame and still got some glass in it. It was part of a window, and I had this mental image. I'm going to take that violin, glue it to that window, and then write some stuff on it that said, the touch of the master's hand. Now, the violin wasn't going to make a lot of sense because it's missing a whole bunch of stuff, but I thought, well, that kind of looks like me sometimes, right? You know, Sometimes I, I'm missing a bunch of stuff. It's still sitting in the garage, Jason. It's hanging out out there somewhere. We have to move it all the time to be able to do something. I, I admire these folks that can, that can spot stuff. Piddle, Wendy's, Wendy's sister, is that way. But she can spot anything, and she can turn it into something, and, and then you want to buy it. It looks like it ought to belong in some store. But I don't, I don't always have that ability, right? And you might not have that ability. You know, you got folks that they know how to weld, they know how to do different things. You wouldn't know what to do with that stuff. Jesus is not that way where that he can look and go, well, I know how to do these things, but I don't really know how to deal with somebody's life that's messed up like that. 
Now, we're that way sometimes. Now, you may be able to reach out to somebody and do a lot of work in somebody's life and help somebody because of something you've been through. But then you see someone else and you go, I don't have a clue how to speak to that thing in their life because I have never experienced that. That's not what I've gone through. I don't have training for that. Jesus is not limited like that. Jesus is not limited by how nice your life is. And so he looks and he wants to create this masterpiece out of you. And he says, look what I've done in this life. Look how I took what's common, what's ordinary. And maybe he takes something that's even tied to dead religious tradition. And he makes it completely different. Makes it amazing. Makes it the best that you've ever seen in somebody. See, it was, it was harder for me um, in my life coming, coming to Christ. It was harder for me because I did grow up in church. I, I really think it was harder for me because I had been around it so long, I knew the right things to say. I knew the way you were supposed to act. I knew the, I knew the Bible verses. I knew the stuff. Because, I mean, when you grow up and your dad's a pastor and your granddad's a pastor, I mean, that's just all you know. And so I knew, as you hear people say, I knew how to play the game. I knew what, I mean, I knew if I didn't act right, you know, I was going to be in trouble. So, so I was going to look churchy no matter what. Because if we didn't, when we got home, he was going to get some churchy up out of me, right? I've sat through many a church service dreading going home because I got in trouble before church even started. He's like, we're going we're gonna to deal with that when we get home. I prayed during church, though. Oh, dear Jesus, let us have a good church service, Lord. Let people be in the altars getting saved, God. Please stretch this service out. <laughs> Maybe it'll be so good he'll have mercy. I knew about God's mercy and his grace. I prayed for it for a long time when I was a teenager. <laughs> was, it wasn't for the right motivation, but God will take even those who have been tied to some dead religious tradition because... Um, I was reading the, the testimonies out of folks uh, that, that are going to get baptized today, and, and I remember from my own experience. It was, like, it was like reading my own story. You know, just sometimes we've been in church, we've been around religion, we've been around stuff, and we've been around good people, and we've been around good, and it's not that. It's just we never actually had a relationship. And so Jesus turns this water into wine. The master of the ceremony says, I can't believe it. Man, this is great. The groom now goes from zero to hero. And we see three things in verse 11 that happen as a result of what Jesus did. In verse 11, it says this, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The sign was evident to everybody that was around him. What, what Jesus did in this situation, this miracle, this creative miracle that he did, it was a sign. People saw it. People heard about it. People talked about it. As a result, it wasn't just that he did something that was really cool. This wasn't like some magic trick. I have a, I have a cousin who's a professional magician. He's also a worship leader. It's interesting. I've always wondered how if he could ever get the two of those things to work together. That'd be just awesome, you know, just like when your microphone appears and then it disappears. 
But I've watched him do some really cool stuff. I mean, he's won Magician of the Year in the state of Alabama multiple times. He's performed in some big places and all this. And I mean, he does some really cool stuff, you know. I mean, stuff's appearing out of nowhere and coins and multiple coins and card tricks and all this stuff. This wasn't what Jesus did. It wasn't some sleight of hand. It wasn't, oh, hey, everybody turn your back for like, you know, 30 minutes while I can take these massive 30-gallon stone things and swap them out and put some wine in here instead of water. It wasn't the deal. So interestingly, you know, enough is that he never really, you don't see where he never touches anything, he never does anything. In fact, he tells people that are there. Now, what would have happened had the servants said, man, we're not going to put water in these? Makes you wonder what... Would the miracle have happened? Now, God already had a plan. And he knew, but, but, but what if the servants just said, no. His mom believed. She didn't know what he was going to do. She had no clue. But she just says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. He speaks to the servants and says, here's what you need to do. They did it. Now can you imagine that you're a servant? Because we don't see anywhere in the text actually where that it turns from water to wine. We don't know whether it happened the minute they filled it up to the brim. We don't know if it happens right before it gets to the master's ceremonies. We don't know if it happens right when he goes to, to put whatever the dipper was up to his mouth to taste. We have no clue. doesn't tell us. All we know is that before, it, before the guy drinks it, it, it happens in some fashion. What if they would have said, okay, now we filled up the pots. We filled the pots up, Jesus. But we know you, you grew up in sacks, right? We're over here in Anderson, you grew up in sacks. We've heard about you. But see, he hasn't done any miracles yet. So nobody, he doesn't have a reputation. They just know who he is. You tell us to fill it up. And now you tell us we're supposed to take a dipper of this and go take it to the, to the head of the party. The dude is going to make sure we get paid, taken care of, whatever. And we're supposed to take it to him and say, here, try this. We don't see they hesitate. Yes, sir. They take it. They take it to the guy. It was powerful. It demonstrated his glory because he never touches anything. He never does anything. It just happens. He doesn't speak to anything. How about that? You know, you hear people a lot of times say, man, I just, I just need to hear a word of God, you know, about this thing in my life. I want to tell you, God can just cause stuff to happen in your life. He ain't got to speak anything. Jesus didn't speak anything. He just said, hey, fill those up. Now take it. Go give it to them. Somehow in that process, he willed something to happen. And something magnificent happened. And then what happened with the disciples? It says, hey, these guys saw the sign... They saw that it displayed his glory and they believed in him. See, it's a powerful thing when God does something in someone's life. I'm going to tell you the first people that ought to be impacted are the people that are closest to them. Because they know where you were. They know what you used to be. They know how you did. And when they see God make a dramatic change in your life, it is near impossible for anyone to look and say, I don't believe that God can change people's lives. Amen. But see, maybe it's because that we have sold this bill of goods that as long as you just pray a prayer and as long as you just you know, you know, say, yep, I said the right words and all of this, but then your life doesn't change. And so people are going, well, you know, I mean, they, they say they've been changed by Jesus, that God's converted them, he's done something powerful in their life, but I, they're still doing the same stuff they used to do. They've been that way for years. When Jesus did this 
supernatural miracle, when he did this creative miracle, it displayed his glory and people believed. They didn't believe that the six stone pots would generate wine from now on. Do you notice that? They didn't start going, hey, we got to go home, find us some stone pots and pour some water in it. Because, I mean, I mean, man, we got 180 gallons of wine. I don't even know if they needed all that much. He may have provided in abundance. They may have been selling some of this then. To, may have been his wedding gift to them, Jason. I mean, we don't know. But we don't see that anybody says, yeah, hey, honey, we need to leave this party early because we're going home. Get the stone pots out, girl, because we're going to put some water up in here and see what happens. We don't see that. They believed in Jesus. Sometimes we get so focused on if God does something powerful, we start going, maybe if we do that formula, God will do that in our life. Maybe, well, God may have been just specifically doing that type of thing in their life because maybe that's not your need. The amazing thing is, is whatever it is that God needs to do creatively in your life, He is the God that can do it. So today, I want to ask you, do you feel... Maybe that your life is commonplace. Maybe, maybe like these, you know, these six stone pots here, you say, man, I, I, I'm not anything special. A lot of times I feel half empty. Maybe you don't feel like you're really serving any kind of powerful purpose. In fact, for many, you could say that the reality is that maybe sin is an embarrassment and it's, and it's a shame in your life and you know that. I, 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 was, so, I was so struck. I've never thought about, you know, when I was, when I was getting ready for today, I've never thought about the, um, the parallels between this situation with them running out of wine and, and our lives. I've never thought about the parallel of that this was going to bring embarrassment to them and sin does the same. Because at the end of the day, I mean, think about it. I mean, we, we can look around. All you got to do is read the newspaper in our, in our community even. There's, there's people being caught doing all kind of stuff. There's situations I even, I even saw and I felt, I felt so bad for... Um, I saw... Someone posted something here recently, and they said, please, just because someone at our workplace got caught doing something bad, don't lump the rest of us into that. We're not all that way. Em embarrassment, sin, eventually, the Bible even talks about, says that, that what's done in secret will eventually be shouted from the rooftops. I'm, man, there's times where I just read the paper. And a lot of folks, they read the paper or they see the, the stuff on the news and they're going, dear God, how can people be doing that? And we need to probably drop that. We need to drop that. Because then I, I tell you, when I saw some of that here about two weeks ago, I thought, oh, dear goodness. I, I saw that the person was married. I saw some stuff and I thought, man, I feel so bad for their family. What a great embarrassment that's going to happen there. All this stuff that... Instead of just trying to figure out, oh, dear goodness, how could people be that bad? I don't know, because maybe I was that bad too. Right? Yeah, I was a preacher's kid that got girlfriend pregnant in the 11th grade. That's right. Yeah, so I have a hard time, if I see something on the news, I have a hard time looking going, how dare they? 
Because every time, if I even, if my brain's even starting to think that way, the Holy Spirit just, just kind of speaks to me and says, you did. You, you, you had problems. You embarrassed your family. Nathan, you, you embarrassed your dad. Your dad was in ministry. You did this stuff. Your sin did that. But God took it away. Through Jesus Christ. Because even in all of that, your life may feel commonplace. You may feel half empty. You may feel like, man, I, I've been abandoned by people. I've had people walk out on relationships with me. I've had people on my job don't like me. you got whatever it is that's happened that makes you feel half empty. And you're going, what on earth am I doing? I hate my job. I hate this stuff in my life. You, what, what, what's my purpose? Why am I here? What am I doing? I always say, I know that God places us even, it doesn't matter if it's because we're having a baptism service or whatever it is that we've got going on. God wants you to hear a word for a reason. And you may be here today, you may be here all the time, and, but you're sensing in your heart, God is speaking to you and he's saying there needs to be something more in your life. You've wondered, you've said there has to be more. I don't understand, God, why do I feel like that there's not any purpose or whatever it is, but there is something more. And I want to, I want to tell you this, if you cannot say with full assurance today that Jesus is the Lord and Savior in your life, then you need to let him fill you up and do a creative miracle in you today. You need to let him change you. may seem like an ordinary stone pot. It may seem like it's just another ordinary Sunday. It may seem like it's a pretty ordinary place for you to be. Whatever it is. But God wants to take the ordinary that is you and I, and he wants to do something creative in you today. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, then today is the day. Let's pray.